So this is our third sermon in this series on baptism. And so far we've discussed two things. The first sermon was what is baptism? And we said that it's the sign and seal of the covenant and that covenant of grace that God has made with his people. And it identifies us with Christ. It places us in his church and it calls us to be engaged in his kingdom. The second sermon was does baptism save and we, we saw the hairiness of that question. And the biblical answer, according to Peter, First uh, Peter 3, it says, yes, baptism does save, but we must qualify that but by what does save mean, right? We need to give a definition for save. So we said baptism doesn't automatically save us in the sense that it gives us automatic eternal life. It doesn't do that, but it does inherently have the power to separate us out from the world and place us in the church. It really does do that. In this way, in this way it sets us on the course for salvation, because that is where the church is headed. So naturally, the next question is, well then, who is baptism for? Who should be baptized? So we're going to spend our time looking at several verses today to support the historic practice of Christian baptism. And we're not going to spend much time on believer's baptism only, simply because that's what all Christians believe. All Christians throughout history have said, yes, believers should be baptized. Adult believers should be baptized. So our time today is going to focus heavily on giving you the biblical grounds for baptizing not just believers, but believers and their children. And the place that we're going to begin uh, with this sermon and this teaching is in Acts chapter 2, where the promise of the Spirit came. Peter tells the onlookers that they should be baptized, for the promise is for them and their children. So that's what we're going to look at today, starting in verse 29, Acts chapter, 20, or Acts chapter 2, verse 29 through 41. It says this. This is Peter speaking, preaching to these people. It says, Brothers... I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that were all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, and we need your help, 
We ask that you would illuminate it for us, that we might see clearly what your message is for us. As we look at this subject of baptism, Father, we pray that you would give us humility, give us insight, and give us the same inspiration that inspired these verses. Lord, we pray that it would wash over us now, that your Holy Spirit would help us to be able to see clearly your word given to us, that we might see Jesus and how it all points to him and what he has done for us. Father, help me as I uh, exhort this congregation. I pray that anything that I say that is not of your word, Lord, and I mean that, that it would go in one ear and right out the other. Lord, we want all of this uh, to glorify your Son and to be uplifting and true. So Lord, I pray that you'd help me as I undergo this task. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So to better understand what we're looking at here, we need to see a little bit of context. We didn't read the entirety of uh, this event for time's sake, uh, but a lot goes on here. So we need to kind of unpack this setting a little bit so that we can connect it to what we're looking at today, which is baptism. So it was Pentecost, right? And the disciples who had just been commissioned by Jesus to disciple the nations, remember that's what he said, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore, baptize the nations, disciple them, and so on. So uh, they're gathered there to prepare uh, for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to wait. So they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come so that they might be able to do this great commission and have the power to do it. Now, since it was a Jewish holiday, the holiday of Pentecost, in verse 5 it says that there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven, right? So it was these devout men who may or may not have been ethnic Jews, but certainly were there to worship uh, the Jewish God. They may have been God-fears. It was these people who heard the tongues in their own language. And then Peter says, well, this that you're hearing, these people aren't drunk. Remember, that's what he says. Uh, so Peter interprets this event to say that this was actually the fulfillment of the promise in Scripture. What they're seeing when the Holy Spirit comes, uh, that, that is a fulfillment of the promise. So he preaches to them this good news of Jesus Christ. And he points at them for his crucifixion. He says, you crucified them, right? And when he says, you crucified them, they get this gut feeling. Oh, no, right? They realize it was us. What God was trying to do, we were working against that. And he, Peter wants them to know that it was their sin that hung him there. And then we see in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, right? There's that gut feeling. Oh, no. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Well, Peter tells them right then and there. Oh no, what do we do? Peter says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's unpack that a little bit. Repent, right? Repent because you crucified the promised offspring who is Jesus. Right? He said, Jesus fulfilled this, and you killed him. Right? He came, he was doing something great, but you were actually working against it. So we repent of that. He says, be baptized, every one of you. So he's speaking to this crowd. He says, every one of you be baptized. How? In the name of Jesus, for the remission of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in the name of Jesus, why? Because baptism identifies you with Jesus. That one is the fulfillment of the promise. You were working against him. You killed him. But you need to actually be baptized into him. So he's calling them to repentance, baptism into him. He says, for the remission of sins, 
Now, this kind of goes back to last week, not because baptism washes away your sins automatically, but because Jesus washes away sins. And when you've been baptized, you've put on Christ, Paul says, and Christ actually does wash away your sins, right? So be baptized into this person who actually does have this power to give you remission of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Again, because uh, what we receive in our baptism is the same thing that Jesus received in his baptism. The same thing that God says over Jesus in his baptism, he says over us. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And what descended on Jesus like a dove? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and rested on Jesus like a dove. And baptism, that, that, that mark right there, baptism becomes that for the Christian faith. What happens to Jesus should be happening to us in baptism. So Peter gives this basis for baptism. He says, the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Right? So there's, in short, who may be baptized. So let me just break this down very simply for you before I explain what the promise there is actually referring to. When he says the promise is for you, remember he's speaking to these devout men from every nation. Right? These people all, from all over, these foreigners that are coming in. So Peter is literally fulfilling that great commission. That, God, or that Jesus gave to his disciples to go and preach to the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, discipling them, teaching them. Right? He's preaching that full authority of Jesus. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified, that's the guy. That's the guy that has the authority that you should be baptized into and discipled into. But that promise, he says, isn't just for those listening, but for their children too. So not just you guys that are listening, but it's for your kids and all the, those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So all who are far off, meaning not just ethnic Israel. Right? It says the nations are gathered here. So these people might be uh, God-fearers, so Gentiles that came into the Jewish faith. that They say, actually, we think Yahweh is God. We do want to worship your God, but we're not ethnic Jews. So Peter says, you guys are too. You, you Gentiles, you can actually come in. So his point is to say that baptism is for them as believers, but not just them. They're kids too. And anyone else that is far off covenantally from Israel that believes. So it's not just Jews, he's saying. All these people can come in. Now what he isn't say, saying is that baptism is for every single person. It would be kind of easy to read that, wouldn't it? If you're reading it wrong, uh, he says it's, it's for you guys, it's for your kids, everyone who's far off. That, that almost includes everyone. And there's a sense when, uh, when we read that, it's like, yes, that is who. But it's who comes and believes and their children, right? That's, that's what he's trying to say there. So it's not just everyone can be baptized. We're not just getting a hose saying, let's just baptize all you all. No, there's, there's stipulations for being baptized. So he's saying baptism is for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. That's important, right? Because God calls people in a certain way to himself, to belief, right? Into the church. Okay, so that's what it means by uh, you and your children and all who are far off. So let's unpack what he means by the promise. He speaks about the promise a couple times here. So we need to have a better understanding of what this promise is that he's referring to. It has a history, right? He's assuming that these people know what this promise is. But we might not have a good understanding of what he's talking about here. What promise is Peter talking about that he's pointing to? Well, it's the covenantal promise that began all the way back at the very beginning of the scripture. In Genesis 3, do you remember what happened? Right after the fall... Uh, God promised something to Eve, didn't he? Right? She had just fallen. Adam had just fallen. They just sinned. And all of humanity, humanity fell with them. And there was this promise that God gave to Eve that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. 
Right? This is called the Proto-Evangelium, as we say in theology. You don't have to remember that. But it just means uh, the, the first hearing of the gospel. The first time this good, no- good news came, this promise that God was going to do something, that he was going to save a people. This is the first little uh, snippet, this little whisper almost, that you get to hear of that. So that's where it began. So this promise was to come through the offspring, right? Eve wasn't going to do it. Adam wasn't going to do it. And then they think, well, maybe it's our kid. Well, we find out it's not their kid. And it keeps going on through these offspring. And this is why children have always been so important to the life of believers because they carry on the promise, right? It comes through them. That's, that's why we have this big emphasis on the children. And this is also why Noah's whole household was saved. Do you remember that? When, when God saved Noah, he said, it wasn't just for you, Noah. Your whole household is saved. Eight people are saved. And what they did after that, we don't necessarily know. But everyone came into the ark. Everyone was baptized, uh, as Peter would say, as we looked at uh, last week. That corresponds to baptism. They all were baptized because of Noah's faith and him being a righteous man. Not just him, but his children after him. The promise had to be carried on. Then in Genesis 17, we see this promise grows a little bit bigger with the Abrahamic covenant. Right? It's getting bigger. God's forming a people for himself. Abraham, or, uh, Genesis 17 uh, says this. You can turn there if you want in your Bibles. Genesis 17, 7 through 11. I want you to catch some of these, uh, these verses uh, and these wordings here. They're very important. Uh, but just listen mostly. You don't have to turn there, but you can. Genesis 17, 7 through 11 says this. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now, last week I asked, how long is eternal life? It's forever. How long is everlasting? The same answer. Forever, right? For a forever covenant, an everlasting covenant. In other words, that doesn't stop. So what happened there should still be happening, right? If it's truly everlasting. Okay, so to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Your offspring after you again. Verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Still there, forever. And I will be your God. No, I will be their God. Future. I will be their God, your offspring, their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. That's who's in the covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise, uh, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Right, so there's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. You have the same thing with the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. I won't walk through all those things, but there was, there was a promise, and then there was a covenant with that promise, and there were signs for that, right? There was the sign of the rainbow in the Noahic covenant. There was the sign of circumcision with uh, the Abrahamic covenant. There was the law in the Mosaic covenant. Uh, there was a kingship in the Davidic covenant. And then in Jesus, what is the sign and seal of the new covenant? It is baptism. Baptism continues this on. All these promises were part of one growing covenant of grace. Now, you see the emphasis there on offspring as it pertains to the promise, don't you? It was imperative that they should include children in the covenantal promise. Why? Because it was through their future generations that the promise would come and continue. It kept going through them and their kids and their kids' kids and on and on and on. Now, Peter's sermon, uh, he says here, but Peter's sermon, the promise had come, is what he says. 
Jesus has come. He is the promise. It's past tense. And you crucified him. Right? The promise has come and you killed him. So Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, right? We've talked about this before. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So all the promises are there summed up in one person in Jesus Christ. And that's why we could say uh, that we've been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ in baptism, right? So we get all those promises in Jesus through baptism. Now think about that. The new covenant in Jesus now, it's not more restrictive than the old, Right? It's actually more expansive than the old. It includes so much, and you get it all packed into one in baptism. Before, only men could receive that one small part of the sign of the covenant in circumcision. Right, The women didn't get that. But now, every woman can even say that she's been circumcised with Christ. How? Through baptism. So through baptism, everyone can receive all the parts of the covenant because of what Jesus has done in fulfilling it. And also, now, not only ethnic Israel can receive the sign, but Gentiles too. And as we'll look further into Acts, we'll see that this promise of the Holy Spirit, it comes to all the nations, doesn't it? It starts in Jerusalem and Judea, then Samaria, then all the nations. And it starts to go out into the world to grow more and more. And this covenant is expanding and getting bigger and bigger, not smaller and smaller. So the covenant in Jesus is more inclusive, not less. Right? And notice one last thing about the, the, the covenantal promise. Peter says that the promise has come. That's past tense, right? It's finally come. It's here. Yay, it's done. No, it it has come. And yet he still says the promise is for you and your children. And your children. We're continuing it on. The, The promise, the covenant still runs through the people of God. Not just stopping at Jesus, but it keeps going through our children. So just like the covenantal promise has always been you and your children, it continues on even into the new covenant. Now, That was a lot of context for this passage in uh, Acts 2 about Pentecost. But having this understanding of the covenantal promise, what he means by promise, is really important to to help us understand what he is saying about baptism. And it helps us answer today our question about who should be baptized. Right? This informs this picture to help us have a a real robust view of what this promise is when when he relates the promise to baptism. Those things are connected. And if you don't see that, then you're not going to get to see the rest of the sermon, really. It's not going to make sense for you. So working with this understanding, I'm going to move forward and uh, kind of give two views. I'm just going to uh, unpack them a little bit. There's two main views in Christianity that two people believe. Um, and I'm just going to say this is a secondary issue. I'm not saying this separates Christians from non-Christians, but there are people that believe in what's called credo-baptism. And then there's what uh, people say they believe in, and it's pedo-baptism. I'll tell you what these two mean. Credo-baptists believe that only believers should be baptized. If you haven't repented and confessed openly with your mouth, you cannot be baptized. The, the word credo, you can kind of hear it. It means, uh, uh, I believe in Latin. Right? So you think about the word like creed, credo-baptist. They believe that only those who confess with their mouths can be baptized. And this stems from Baptist and Anabaptist traditions back to uh, around the 1500s. So, Post-Reformation, after the Reformation happened, people started going back to the Bible saying, what does the Bible actually say? Reevaluating what Christian history has done all before. And they came to the conclusion, well, maybe we shouldn't be baptizing our infants because before they were. And people who believe this now, if you want to think about different congregations and different uh, denominations, Baptists believe this, Pentecostals believe this, the, the Meth- or, sorry, Methodists don't, Restorationist movements do, so like Churches of Christ, those, uh, those type of churches, and non-denominational churches. And that's 
pretty much the main like four groups that believe credo-baptism, that only believers can be baptized. Now, on the other hand, you have the paedo-baptist view, which is what I'm going to be preaching this morning, uh, what our church believes uh, and has historically always believed as Presbyterians. And they believe that believers and their children may be baptized. Pedo means infant in Latin. Right? So paedo-baptists believe that believers and their children should be baptized, and pretty much all Christians that weren't mentioned in that first list are this. Historically, this has been the majority view uh, all throughout history. So uh, I could go on the list. You could go Presbyterians, Anglicans, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. The majority of Christians have always believed this. So there's the two main views. So let's jump into uh, what this church believes. And I want to, again, just say this is a secondary issue. If you don't believe this, you're not going to get kicked out of the church or anything like that. Uh, But it is what we believe as a church. So I just want to go forward humbly by saying that you are brothers and sisters sisters in Christ uh, if you disagree with this. But I do believe this is actually what God's word says. So who should be baptized? We said believing adults, right? We we can all agree on that. Believing adults should be baptized. But I don't want to spend too much time on this. But uh, if if you would like to think about this for a minute, um, paedo-baptists, those who believe in infant infant baptism, we all believe this too. So it's not just the, the, the Baptists that believe this. So we've got to move forward and say, okay, we can agree on this. So only believe, or believers can be baptized. And then is there anything more? So the requirement for every outsider, uh, and by outsider I mean those who are not in the covenant of God, must have repentance and faith to be given the sign and seal of the covenant and become an insider. That's what everyone believes. To come in, you have to have this sign. But this is a given, right? Because it's always been this way. If you think back to the Old Testament, um, if someone wanted to enter into the people of God, what happened? They had to be circumcised. If if they were going to come into the fold, they had to show that they were repentant by uh, being circumcised and then joining the people after that. So this covenantal principle carries over into the New Testament. If you want to enter the church, the kingdom of God, the people of God, you must do as it says in verse 40 and 41. Right? Separate yourselves out from this crooked generation. Be baptized. Uh, be distinct. Be a holy people. Save yourself from this crooked generation by separating out in baptism. So this principle continues on, and we all believe that, but here we get to the children, right? The children. No one in here has a problem with the basic believer's baptism, uh, but there may be people in here where they're stumped up. Well, what about the children? I don't quite understand that. Now, many will say uh, on the credo-baptist side that there isn't any explicit example of children of believers being baptized in the New Testament. And to this, they're, they're, they're partially right, right? So the, the burden of proof, they, they put it on us as the paedo-baptists and say, well, you've got to prove to me in Scripture where there's an infant actually baptized is baptized. But I believe this is a little bit misguided because if you think about it, there isn't any explicit example of children of believers not being baptized and then coming to um, some kind of age of accountability to where they were then to repent and believe either. And if you th- look at Acts, that's about a 40-year period. Right? That's, that's enough time for you to reach that age of accountability. There, there would have been this period where believers were baptized and then they had children, and there would have been one of the two cases happening in Acts, but you don't see explicitly either. Right? So... Neither side really has much grounds there. It is a little bit gray in that sense that there isn't an explicit example of either side. But what you do see over and over is that whole households were baptized because one person in there, the head of the household, believed. 
Right? So then their whole household believed. Now what are you to do with those passages that show us that one person believed, the head of the household believed in Jesus, and their whole household is baptized? Right? That happens over and over. If you've taken notes and trying to go to, to Scripture references, Cornelius in Acts 10, Lydia in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, Crispus in Acts 18, Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1. Right? So the list goes on and on of people who believe in Jesus, and then their whole household believes and is baptized immediately. Right? So all of them are baptized, and that doesn't leave much room for uh, you to say, well, they went through a process of discipleship, they had to think about these things and let them ruminate for a while. No, most of the time when it happened, they said, where's the water? Right? You're baptized, all right, now, now let's go. Let's go. Right? So they brought it to their household, and their whole household uh, believed. Now, think about this. Is it really likely that none of these household baptisms, they're, they're over and over in Scripture, is it likely that none of these had children of believers in them? When it says that their whole household was baptized, is it likely that they had no kids in there? Now, think about the context that we're talking about here. This isn't New York City, right? It's not a bunch of singles living together. This is a culture that really embraced children. They were actually trying to have as many kids as they could, right? Because that's free labor. Uh, so, so, so they're trying to have lots of babies, and their households are really full, and then their whole household believes. So we'd have to say, it's a little bit of a stretch to say, well, none of those cases there was any kids in them. There probably was kids there. So again, we don't have explicit examples where we say, yes, an infant was baptized, but we don't have either side saying that there was either case. So if believer's baptism only... Believers' baptism only, so creative baptism. If that's what Peter's view is here at Pentecost uh, in Acts 2, then I want you to consider some of the implications of this. If he were preaching um, a credo-baptist message, this would have been a huge deal, right? Because the covenant included children as part of the covenant. And this is why infants were circumcised on the eighth day. They didn't believe, right? They were babies. They, they, they didn't have confession or, uh, or profession of faith. They were just included in the covenant. Now think about that. If Peter's saying, well, now they're not, right? What would that mean to a crowd of people who their children are part of this covenant? And then the good news is the promise has come and your children aren't part of it. Wow. That'd be a little bit painful to hear, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be, oh, yeah, awesome. It would be, ah. What do you mean? I thought this was an everlasting covenant. I thought it didn't stop. I thought that there was continuity that kept going. And you're telling me that now my kids aren't? What do we do now? Robert Letham, a reformed minister, I think said it best. He said, if the children of believers were excluded from membership in the new covenant, when they had been an integral part of the old covenant, Pentecost would have been a day of mass excommunication. Think about it. Your kids are part of the covenant. They're included. They are, they are there. And it's established that they are going to be in this everlasting covenant. And then guess what? Here's Peter's message. Your kids are all excommunicated. We need something from them. We need a profession of faith. And we need repentance. And you better show it to me. And then you're not, they're not a part of us. They are not one of us, the people of God, until they have this explicit example of repentance and faith. And then we will act and say, now you are part of the people of God. Right? So that, that's what would have been the message to these people if Peter had been preaching that. If this is what he meant, then there would have been an uproar, wouldn't there? Wouldn't there? I mean, think about that. If I heard this message and I had my kids sitting next to me and you're like, oh, you're, like, listen, son. And then he said that, that would have been, oh, shoot. Are you serious? Like, no, you are, you are part of this. So there would have been a radical shift so much so that I probably would have said, and I think most of the people there would have said, this can't be that everlasting covenant. 
This is so broken with what the way the old covenant was that it can't even be said to fulfill that old covenant. This would abolish it. This would break with that old covenant. But that's actually not what Peter said, is it? He didn't say the promise is just for you who believe. Right? He says it's for you and your children. And not only them, who are, uh, but those who are far off also, right? It's getting bigger, just like the covenant with Abraham. It was for his whole household, right? And he was circumcised, and who else was? His children. And guess who else was? His slaves were too. His whole household, those who were far off, those foreigners that Abraham had contracted to come and be a part of him, who were part of the covenant, they're circumcised too. So the real question is, where did we get the idea that our children uh, and those who are far off are excluded are no longer part of this covenantal people of God. Now, I want you to walk with me some, through a little bit of logic. Call it some baptismal logic. And I want to ask you some questions. It's going to be if this, then this, and you answer those questions. And on the third one, uh, I'm going to ask you a question that might stump you. Right? When you have an Israelite and an Israelite and they have a child, what is that child? It's an Israelite, right? And they raised him like an Israelite. They gave him the, the birth certificate of circumcision. Here you are. Uh, we're going to give you circumcision. You're one of us. What we're going to do as Proverbs 22, 6 says. We're going to train you up in the, the way you should go. You're our child. And even when you're old, you're not going to depart from this way, right? Innocent until proven guilty, right? <laughs> you can stick around until you depart from the faith, right? When an American and an American have a child, what is it? It's an American. You are an American citizen. You raise them as an American citizen. Uh, you give them that birth certificate. You are one of us. And the child is an actual citizen regardless of their choice. And they must abide by the law of the land. It doesn't matter if they want to be an American or not. They still have to act like an American because they're living in America. Right? So there's the, the logic. Now, when you have a Christian and a Christian and they have a child, what is it? Is it? <laughs> This starts to stump people, doesn't it? This is where we say, I don't know, though, right? I don't know if it's actually a Christian. Well, the answer is right. It's a Christian baby. But based on what? How, how do we get here? Can we just, if then, if that, and use logic to, to figure out what we believe? No, we need to look at the, the biblical basis for this, right? And there is one. There is a biblical basis for saying this. Besides the fact uh, that it's been this way all through the Old Testament, right? We established that. The promises for you and your offspring. Besides that, we also have New Testament grounds for saying that this is still the case. This is still the way that the covenant grows, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.14, another place you might want to write down if you're going to uh, help go, go back to these things and roll around in your mind. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, The believing husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, this is the part you need to catch, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Right? But as it is, they are holy. Paul is speaking here of covenantal holiness. Right? This, is a, this is not a purity of heart. This is a purity of covenantalness. Right? You are in the covenant. People were wondering, well, how should we think about our unbelieving spouses? If we're married to a Christian and uh, they're holy but what, and I'm not holy or vice versa, right? what, what would go on there? And Paul says, otherwise, uh, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Right? Because one of you is holy, your children will be holy. Right? That's what he's trying to say there. In other words, citizenship in the kingdom of God actually works like citizenship in the United States. Where do you think the United States got it from? Obviously, the Bible. 
But it, it works the same. If even one of your parents is a citizen in the kingdom, then you are granted the rights of citizenship, um, and you should be given the sign and seal of citizenship, which is a birth certificate, or in the kingdom of God, that's baptism, right? If even one of your parents is, you are in. That's the way it works biblically. But what have we done in American culture? We, we've really moved away from that, and we're much more of an individualized culture now, aren't we? Right? We don't even like the idea that someone would tell us what we are before we get to make a decision in that. We, we reject covenantal rights. We shout from the rooftops that I define my existence. I'll say who I am. You won't tell me who I am. I, 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 he's not my president. Right? He, he's not this. I'm not this. Right? We, we want to blur all these lines of identification of, who, of saying who we are. And this is why we've moved from two genders... To 72 genders, to now to not say, it's, it's a, a bigot position to say, well, you would say there's only 72? How, how do we know how many there are? There could be, who knows how many, right? We've made this a fluid thing to where there's no way of uh, looking at an objective reality and saying it is this. So in our culture, we've blurred these lines of identification. But I want you to know, church, that in the scripture, the Bible draws very clear lines about who is who when it comes to the people of God. It's black and white. Right? If you look at it, you're a sheep or you're a goat. Right? You're a child of God or you're a child of Satan. You're wheat or you're chaff. You're a Jew or you're a pagan. You're a Christian or you're not. You're a believer or you're an unbeliever. You are one or the two. Right? And yet, for some reason, when a baby is born, we all like to dance around the line. Like, I don't know what this thing is. I know a Christian and a Christian had it, but do we really know what should we call this? Right? We, we get weird when it comes to children. Now, most credo Baptists aren't bold enough uh, to call their children goats. They just won't do it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, even though they're not going to call their children uh, children of Satan, the children of darkness, credo Baptists, on the other hand, sometimes aren't bold enough to call their children uh, what we believe that they are, Christians. Right? We don't want to say confidently, no, that my kid is a Christian. Right? Because we're waiting on something. We want them to show something. But what we should be looking at is their baptism. Where God says, no, this is who he is. He is one of yours, and because he's one of yours, he's one of mine. Because that's how it works. Because the covenant's not just with you and me, it's with you and me and your offspring after you, right? So, what we do is, what we, do is we have this kind of wait and see stance. We'll just see what the baby decides to be. Kind of like most modern people in America. We'll, we'll just wait and see. Like the, the, the modern gender reveals, right? We don't know what it is. We'll let him decide, Right? We want to come and celebrate life. We have a new baby. We don't know if it's a baby boy or a baby girl. We'll wait till they reach this age of accountability, whatever that is. Um, and then they'll get to decide what they want to be. And then we will parent them accordingly. We're not going to call you a boy. We're not going to call you a girl. Because you decide that. Right? There's, there's many ways in which we've moved away from the clear lines that Scripture draws about identification. Namely, baptismal identification. What it says about who you are. Right? When we start acting like this, this is, this is a big no-no. No, no, no. We raise our children up in the way that they should go, right? There's, there's scriptural grounds in the way that we can say, no, but the Bible says my son is holy because I'm a believer, right? You are holy. You are one of the Lord's. You, therefore, you should act like it. I'm going to call you to that. Whatever happened to raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? That's not Old Testament, by the way. It has its roots there, but that's in Ephesians 6. That's Paul telling New Testament Gentiles how to raise their kids. That's New Covenant parenting where uh, Paul tells children, obey your parents in the Lord. 
Now, think about that. How can you raise children in the Lord and uh, if you consider them outside the Lord and withhold the covenantal rights and seals from them? Right? How can you do that? You, I want you to submit to God's law. And they say, well, am I part of God's church? Like, am I a citizen or not? Are you going to hold me to that standard? And the answer should be yes. Yes, you've been baptized. Of course, you're a Christian. You are one of us. But if not, there's that grayness, right? That age of accountability, whatever that is. We've started to bring in all these concepts that start to blur the lines, and it makes us confused. Now think about this. How is this any different than the believing parents bringing infants to Jesus in Luke 18, and the disciples rebuke them? What did they say? No, 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 just the adults. Just the adults. Not the kids. Believers only. We don't, we don't want the kids to come too. Notice it didn't just say children, because some might, people might say, well, they were like a 12-year-old ch- child. No, it says infants. They're carrying these babies to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Let the children come. Right? For such is the kingdom of God. They, they are what it's about, actually. This is our future. This is where we are going. Absolutely do not hinder the children. The, ch- the, ch- the kingdom of God, the church, is where we not only want the children to be, but to participate, right? We don't just want them sitting next to us or throwing them into some class uh, doing their own thing. We want them to be here and to worship with us. They are part of the people of God. It's their covenantal right and privilege, and this certainly includes baptism, right? Don't just sing the songs. Don't just do the confessions. Be a part. Have the whole package. You are part of us. That's what we want to tell our children when we raise them. We want this, uh, this church to be a people where we can look to everyone that is a member and baptized and say, No, you are my brother or sister in Christ. You are loved by God. God has told you that you are his son, you are his daughter, and you are here among us. That is the way that we keep children in the covenant and keep them there, right? By treating them what God has called them to be. You say, son, this is who we are. As for me and my whole household, we are going to serve the Lord. We are going to do this, and this is the direction we're going to go. And if you depart from it, then that's on you. But I am raising you in the way that you should go, which is God's word. Now, if someone's never connected all these dots for you, you might find that you're um, in a very hot seat, just like the people in Peter's day, right? Whoa. That's a, that's a gut check right there where we make all these connections and you realize, I thought I was working this way um, and helping God out and raising my kids the right way. But then you realize, maybe I wasn't, right? When, when these connections start to happen. So he showed them that the very promise they were striving after they'd crucified. They were hindering the, the process that God was working out covenantally. And rather than embracing the promised offspring, they rejected him. I said, no, we're not going that direction. That doesn't make sense. Now, they personally probably didn't actually crucify Jesus because they were foreigners. But his whole point there is to say that it was your sin that done this, your people that was working this way. And I want you to realize that, that the Jesus has come and you still haven't got on board yet. You still haven't accepted Jesus. The direction that they were heading was not towards the promise. It was away from it. Right, And maybe some of you have realized this today in your own faith and practice, that you knew you wanted to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Absolutely, yes. No one would say no to that. But by not baptizing them, you see that you were actually hindering their covenantal rights. Where God has said, no, this is for them. And you said, we'll wait. We'll wait and see. Right? It's in their baptism that God says that they are in the Lord, but you have withheld that until they wanted to say that they were God's first. Right? We want you to say it before we're actually going to give it to you. We're not going to treat you like that until you line up to what we are wanting you to be. We want you to to perform and then we will give it to you. And if that's you and you're wondering, man, 
That's kind of how I was doing. I was waiting for them to do it. You can have the same kind of gut feeling, the same kind of response that the uh, onlookers of Peter did. What do I do now? How, How do I move forward? And I'll tell you, it's the same way that Peter responds, right? Repent and believe. God's promise isn't just for you. It's for your children, right? For your children and all who are far off, right? Everyone who the Lord calls to himself. It's not too late. You can include your children. You can move forward. You can baptize your children and have them be a part. And you can all come together and say, yes, we are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And we go together as a household. We are one. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We do things sometimes not even realizing what we're doing. And until we get the dots drawn for us and make the connections in Scripture... um, Sometimes we don't act accordingly. So Lord, I pray that you would show each and every one of us the ways that we can repent this morning. And I don't just want this to be a, a us and them kind of thing at all, Lord. I pray that you would uh, even show the, the pedo baptists in this room that say amen to all of that. Lord, show us the ways that we've fallen short of that. Show uh, myself the ways that I have not lived up to this great calling that you've given to us to raise our children, to give them the sign and seal of the promise. Father, work on our hearts, work on my heart. And I pray, Father, that we would be a body that is very eager and hungry and excited about what you're doing in your word and what you're doing in your church as the people of God. Lord, we're excited to be part of this great promise, part of this great covenant that you've called us to. Help us to live faithfully in that covenant. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.